back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard Al. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful that you've joined us. You know, when I was new in AA, I found it hard to believe that people who were sober 5, 10, or 20 years were still going to meetings. In fact, I thought that those who were picking up birthday chips came once a year or, at most, maybe every quarter. I figured that people with a few weeks or months or maybe a couple of years had to go all the time, but why keep going to meetings if you've shown you can stay sober for a long period of time? Of course, I eventually found the answer by regularly attending meetings where I met lots of sober alcoholics who not only came all the time, but actually seemed to enjoy it. As my own years in the program continued to add up, I was still going to six or seven meetings a week, not just to fortify and protect my sobriety, but to actually enrich and enjoy my life through the close interpersonal relationships with other alcoholics. Of course, this didn't just happen. It took time and work. And it came as the result of watching and getting to know people like my guest on today's show, Linda G. Linda got sober at 22 and proceeded to put together more than four decades of sobriety as an active and engaged member of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I first met Linda many years ago at an AA club that we still attend, I got to know her the way we do in the program, by hearing her speak in meetings and watching her interact with others. Her sharp, no-nonsense shares always seemed to be on the mark, and her references to the big book demonstrated a thorough knowledge of how AA works. What's more, by coming early and sticking around after meetings, I had the opportunity to see her commitment, compassion, and understanding in action. Whether it was one-on-one or in a small group, Linda's thoughtful and provocative comments seemed to attract people to her. I certainly wanted to get to know her better, and I did. Even with a very full schedule in the medical profession, in which she's helping many people every day, Linda still makes time to go to meetings and work with other women as a caring and dedicated sponsor. The effectiveness of her sponsorship is readily seen in the way her sponsees sponsor other women. If you ever want to know why someone with 40-plus years in the program is still going to meetings and stays actively engaged in every facet of Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll enjoy today's show with Linda G one of the finest people I've ever known. By the way, the audio quality of today's show is a Zoom thing, not exactly the best, but as you're drawn into Linda's story, I believe you'll soon feel like you're right there in the same room. So, with gratitude to God, AA, and all of you for joining me on this podcast, I want to call on my AA sister, Linda G. My name is Linda, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Linda. Thanks for being on the show. What I want to do is talk about a little bit about how it was and how you got to AA and, of course, what happened in early AA. But I'd also like to talk about what it's been like since. And um, you've been sober uh, 40, 42 or 43 years? 42. 42. So what's your sobriety date? March 13th of 78. Wow. Where, where were you when you got sober? I'm pretty sure you and I would not have run in the same circles. I mean, I'm just guessing. So I <laughs> I had quit college to um, pursue uh, using and drinking and carousing full time. And it was a full yeah. and it was a full time job. Um, mm-hmm. And so I ended up at 22 jobless, un- unemployed and unemployable, mooching, mm-hmm. mooching on the person who would become my next relationship in a series mm-hmm. of in a series of awful relationships 
Mm. And, um, you know, for me, I knew I, I'm, I mean, I didn't know it as a discrete thought, but I had this feeling that I was definitely failing in life. Mm. And I had been extremely suicidal all my life and and very much so towards the end of my drinking. I knew things were not going. My parents were kind enough to be paying for a therapist for me. Uh-huh. And um, one of the last big drunks that I pulled was when I went to therapy and showed up completely sloshed. She, mm-hmm. she had never even seen me. I'd never, you know, I might have, I, I smoked marijuana breakfast, lunch and dinner, but yeah. you know, I had that under control. I could, I could drive and fairly well function high most of the time. Sure. But you know, this was an addition of pot and Valium and booze. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that I couldn't, I couldn't keep under control. So when I, when I showed up at the therapist's office, she was a, a sweetheart. She was, she was just a doll. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she said, Oh my God, have you been drinking? And I could barely put one foot in front of the other. And <laughs> I thought, I'm busted. I'm really busted. I didn't, and never intended to show up drunk at therapy. <laughs> cause, mm. cause even then I knew that was a bad look. So, um, she said, what else have you been doing? And I thought she was a genius that she could figure out I'd been, <laughs> <laughs> I'd been I'd been taking Valium and drinking. And yeah, she could read the signs. She I could guess, read huh? the signs, right? I'm sure my eyes were, sort of, were turning in opposite directions. Mm-hmm, so she got up. Mm-hmm. She says, "Oh, I've got to go call." She she would she worked along with a psychiatrist who would mm-hmm. prescribe you know different medications for people since she wow. was a therapist a PhD therapist and she couldn't prescribe. So I thought, uh-huh. "Oh my God, she's going to get me committed." I was very worried. So then I got uh-huh. up which was a bad idea because I could I wasn't walking very well. I went, I had actually started getting drunk at a little, a quaint little bistro downstairs from her office. So I, I made my way back down there and called um, Kathy, this woman that I was living with. Uh-huh. And, and I told her, I, and I, but I couldn't remember the phone number. So I actually had to look it up in the phone book when uh-huh. there were, when there was, were such things. When there were such and things. I, yeah. So I called the, I called my house and I said, you have to come pick me up. And she could tell I was really, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't doing well. What mm-hmm. I didn't know is that she, she was really worried. She ran out of the house and smacked her mm-hmm. head on a low line, on a low limb in the front yard and knocked herself out in the front yard. Wow. So there was a space of time there. She should have shown up in about 15 or 20 minutes, but it took her about an hour. And by then I was, I was getting closer and closer to the floor in this mm-hmm. nice little bistro. And I saw people looking at me in a way that mm-hmm. really wasn't pleasant. So my goodness, Kathy finally yeah. showed up and, and escorted me out of there before the police came. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, wow, that's, that's and sweetly a, that's said, a... and sweetly said to me, if you throw up in my car, I'm, I'm throwing you out. So I made it home. I made it home without throwing up, went to the bathroom as I had mm-hmm. done. This is my pattern right here yeah. from the first to the last drink. Went to and the this bathroom. Is at, this is at 20, this is at 22 years old. Yeah. This is at 22. Went to the bathroom, mm-hmm. threw up. The last thing I saw was the ceiling of the bathroom before I passed out. But this time was different because I had really taken a lot of Valium Mm -hmm. on top of the booze, on top of the whatever else I took. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was anoxic. I think there was a little bit of lack of oxygen to my brain. And she was really, she was really mad at me. Kathy was very pissed at me. So she left Uh me there for, I don't know how many hours on the floor. And when I woke up, uh, I just, I felt horrible. Not, 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 not like just pulling a bad drug, but, like I had really done something bad to myself physically. Mm-hmm. And then sure. I had the shakes. Um, my hands were shaking. I could not hold a coffee cup with one hand for a year after that. 
Oh I did something goodness. very bad to my nervous system. I might have and knocked. That... I might have knocked a few points out of my IQ, which is probably better for me. <laughs> it was probably what I had to do in order to get yeah. a little more simple, you know, to yeah. to be able to accept the program. Were these things that all grew out of childhood things or environmental things, or you know, what got you to the point where where you became this person that you're describing to us right now? So I, you know, that's a really good question. I, you know, one of the benefits of the program is that I actually was able to get close enough to my father to ask him some questions about me when I was a kid. So I was a, I was a, I came, I sprang from the womb fearless. Mm. I was afraid of nothing when I was a child. My father said it was really terrifying because he just, he, he just thought I was going to end up doing something to kill myself because I was so fearless. And I really was fearless. And then I went to Catholic school huh. <laughs> and learned Catholic and learned school. from the nuns that, you know, that God was this uh, vengeful creature, you know, who uh, who was voyeuristic in the sense that he's watching everything you're doing. And uh-huh. so, uh, you know, we learned how to do confession in the first grade. What is it that a first grader has to confess? I mean, really. But the nuns were the nuns were always way ahead of us. They had a little missalette of this little white book. That told mm-hmm. you what sins were, what kind of what things were sins, so that when you mm-hmm. went to the, when you went into the uh, confessional, you didn't sound like an idiot. You could pick out mm-hmm. several things from that book about you know what was really sin. There were mm-hmm. things there that I knew were sinful, like lying to your parents, lying to your teachers. But there were other things in there that looked very intriguing to me that I hadn't already tried. So mm-hmm. I probably was using the book for the wrong purpose. But you know, Catholic school was a was a horrible experience. The nuns were. If I if I told you what happened to me in Catholic school, you would not believe it. I don't think you'd believe it. I never really thought of it as, as abuse, but it really uh-huh. was. I mean, the nuns would it was a it was a horrible experience, and the nuns would tell us, you know, if they're physically abusing a child, what uh-huh. they would do is they tell us. The nun would t- say to would say to the class, if you tell your parents, I'm going to do the same thing to your parents. And wow. you know, you're seven years old. You don't want the nun hitting your father or your mother. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't make any sense, but it was, you know, that's what they would tell us. Both of my parents grew up in the Depression. My mother had, had three sisters. Her mother died when she was a child. And so when, during the, the, the worst part of the Depression, her father mm-hmm. could not take care of them. So my mother ended up in an orphanage, and that had a tremendous effect on huh. her. My mother had a horrible fear of abandonment and poverty as well. My father mm-hmm. grew up poor, but I asked him, did you have a horrible childhood? He said, oh, I had uh-huh. a great childhood. Who, who told you that I had a horrible childhood? I said, mom did. My mother's passed now, but he said, oh, no. No, he said, I have to do pretty much whatever I wanted. But my father's father was an alcoholic and a gambler. So the, you know, so yeah. so if, you know, the people, the loan sharks needed, wanted his money, they'd go to my dad and they'd threaten my father to get uh-huh. his father to pay up on his, on his debt. So... Neither mm-hmm. one of them mm-hmm. had a wonderful childhood when you think about it. Yeah. And you know what's really interesting, Howard? Yeah. My so I was sober when my mother my mother died 11 years ago. My sister was uh-huh. so, my sister's in the program also. And so we were able to attend my mother's death sober. Oh, that's but, right. But after my mother died, I mean, you never really think of how you're going to you don't really know and you can't project how you're going to feel or how you're mm-hmm. going to react when your when your parents die. After my mother died, I felt this intense sense of loneliness and regret, but not my own, my mother's. Mm. I felt so sorry for my mother. It was just a, this intense sadness for the life that my mother had lived. And so her family, there weren't very many people in her family that went to college and finished, but she did. And my yeah. father did too. Yeah. My father also went to college. So 
And so they were both very well educated, but they brought with them, you know, the, the baggage of their backgrounds. Sure. So were you, you the product of nature or nurture by the time you, you got old enough to drink? It was mostly nurture. My father was very militaristic, very authoritarian, mm -hmm. physically and emotionally abusive. Yeah. Um, my mother, my mother was pretty much of a screecher. She never, my, first of all, my mother really couldn't hurt you even if she wanted to. My father never touched my mother. My father never physically abused my mother ever. He yeah. did, he did us, but he didn't her. Yeah. And so, but I couldn't rely on her to, you know, protect me against yeah. him. When was your, when was your first experience with, uh, with alcohol or drugs? I think I was 12 or 13. Earlier than that, in the, mm -hmm. in the good old days, when you got sick, they used to give you paragoric. You remember paragoric? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So paragoric is tincture of opium in an extract. It's an extract, so it's in alcohol. What's not to love, right? So that stuff was fun. I mean, I didn't use, uh -huh. I didn't abuse it, but I certainly did enjoy it when I got it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so then I think I was about 12 or 13. My father was a heavy drinker, not mm -hmm. an alcoholic, but a very heavy drinker. And my parents mm -hmm. used to entertain a lot. So there were a lot, there was a lot of drinking. You know, mm -hmm. I, I watched people drink uh, when they came over and they had a good time and they would smoke cigarettes and they were loud and, you know, it seemed like they were having a good time. And so, um, so I, I think I was about 12 or 13. The first serious drink that I took, it was on a Saturday, Saturday evening. My parents were, seemed like my parents were always exhausted. As soon as I got home, they just went to bed and mm -hmm. laid in bed and yeah. watched TV. My brother was young, is two years younger than me. And so he was uh -huh. already in bed. And so I wandered over to the liquor cabinet and just started pouring myself something. I don't even remember. What it was. I said, maybe it was rum. I don't remember. But I got drunk and, you know, this is the pattern. I got drunk. Um, I think I may have passed out. Maybe I had a blackout. I don't remember. And then yeah. I got sick. And then, you know, I went to bed. And the next morning, Sunday morning, my dad came in to get me up to go to church. And, and I mean, he could tell what was going on. And mm -hmm. he kind of, he gave me a pass. He gave me a pass. And so I didn't have to go to church and, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and so it was, I guess, I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed the feeling yeah. that I had. The next major drink I took was when I was in a, there's a girls uh, Catholic soft, softball league uh -huh. and we had won our games, our in-town games, and we were going out of town to play in a, in a competition. And sure. so I took a couple of my dad's beers with me. I had, I'd never drunk a beer. Uh -huh. I took a couple of beers with me and everybody else did the same and somebody filled huh. the tub with ice and we won, we won the competition. And so everybody started drinking. And this time when I drank, I felt like I was a part of the group. It was great. Yeah. I, I could talk to people and, you know, play and have a good time. And then I went a little too far and I had a blackout and I said and did things in the blackout I still don't know about. Huh. But, the, but the next day when we were getting ready to leave, they gave, they gave gag gifts. And my gag gift was a magnet for having such a magnetic personality. So God only knows, <laughs> God only knows what I did and what I said to, to Yeah. To, What's interesting about that to me is that that was your first real experience with the social part of drinking and, and the peers and everything else. But you immediately felt like you fit in as you, as you were doing it. I, I know some people, it takes them a while to ease into that, but it sounds like you, you were hungry for it. Yeah, I was, I really was because, um, we had moved, there was a cultural shift. This may mm -hmm. be the, 
This may be the nature part of it. This was a culture shift for me. I grew up primarily in Hispanic areas. And then mm-hmm. after that, my dad, my dad moved up in his work. He worked for the federal government. So we moved all mm-hmm. over the place. We moved from San Antonio to Richardson, Texas. Mm-hmm. Richardson, it was very white. Yeah. And um, so I just, you know, I, I was a complete cultural shift. And mm-hmm. I got a lot of, I got a lot of uh, discrimination. And mm-hmm. so, and not only that, but I was trying, I, my, my, I was trying to figure out my sexuality. I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know I was, mm-hmm. in those days, I didn't know I was gay, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, so coming out was also part of what was happening. So it was mm-hmm. like the, sure. it was like the trifecta. I needed, I needed a drink in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. So, so you continued to drink uh, through your school years and your college years. I uh-huh. turned 18 in high school. And mm-hmm. in Texas, you could drink in the bar at the age of 18. Sure. And so that's not a really good place for an 18-year-old to be. By that time, my parents found out, not that I, I did not tell them, and this is the mm-hmm. 70s, so it wasn't cool to be gay in the 70s. Right. And so they found out, I had written a love letter to a girl mm-hmm. whose mother was also a teacher in the same school system where my mother taught, and um, her mother found the letter. Oh, and I mean, it wasn't explicit. It's just, I mean, I'm in high school and I'm, yeah, yeah. you know, dopey and goofy and, uh-huh, you know, it was, yeah. it was, but you could tell from the nature of the letter what was, what was happening. And so she came over and told my parents and I remember coming home that that was on a Friday. I remember coming uh-huh. home that Friday and I was getting ready to go in, inside and then right as I was getting, getting ready to open the sliding glass door, I saw my parents sitting on the couch together, which they hadn't done in a while. And they were uh-huh. staring at the television and it wasn't on. Oh, so geez. I knew bad stuff was going to happen. And uh-huh. it did. And they, you know, so they confronted me. I didn't deny it. I uh-huh. couldn't deny it. I mean, there was no denying it. And so, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't deny it anyway. And mm-hmm. so my father said, you will stop this immediately. And uh, of course yeah. that, that didn't happen. So for the next year, for almost my entire, entire senior year in high school, my parents treated me like I was a boarder at the house. I oh. left every weekend on Friday, and I didn't yeah. come back until Sunday evening, and they never asked me where I went, and they never yeah. asked me what I did, and I went yeah, to the bars. Didn't. It was the only place. Yeah. There was no place wow. else for me to go. Where was I going to go? Uh-huh. So here I am, 18 years old. I'm a budding alcoholic. I'm trying to come out, mm-hmm. and I've got nobody. I mean, I don't have. there's wow. not a single adult that I can talk to who's not going to ignore me, abuse me, or try to use me in some other way. Did your alcohol use or, or anything else, did it kind of ramp up as a it result did, of immediately. that? immediately. I mean, that's what that's what I did at the bar. Yeah. I mean, you can't go to the bar and not drink, you right. know? So, yeah, right. so I drank and, you know, and I learned what being gay was all about in the bar. So then I went to college and on, and on those, you know, the weekend drinking, you know, uh-huh. turned into, you know, several days a week drinking. And mm. it, I, I, I forgot to mention something. When I was 15 years old, I had a friend, mm. a high school friend. Mm-hmm. Who was who was in Al-Anon, uh, Alateen, yeah. and so I used to spend some time with her, and I ran into, I ran into a guy who was who seemed ancient. He was thirty. He seemed mm-hmm. ancient to me, and he was a, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he pulled me aside one day and he said, "You're a potential alcoholic," and I knew enough about and not a whole lot, but enough about the program that I thought, "No, I don't think so." And you no, know, thanks, and, and thanks for telling me, but you know. Keep it to yourself. Huh. So he actually 12-stepped me when I was 15, and that stayed in my brain. 
And so even though I was only 22 when I quit drinking, it was uh-huh. it would circle around in my brain that I could have been an alcoholic, that I, I might be an alcoholic. There might be something about my drinking. It was enough. It was it was enough to kind of ruin my drinking a little bit yeah. and to make yeah. me a little bit more receptive about going into the program. Yeah. What was your defining moment or your moment of clarity or the the bottom that you hit before you decided that you really needed to stop drinking? I was, like I said, when I came in, I was unemployed. I had been working construction. I mm-hmm. went from going to college to quitting college. And then I had to go find a job. And I found several interesting jobs. I drove an ice mm-hmm. cream truck, which did not make my parents happy at all. <laughs> After, you know, I listen, I graduated in, with honors from high school. You know, I was in yeah. the, yeah. I was in the uh, you know, whatever, the honor league or whatever it was. I got partial, yeah. I got partial, they offered partial scholarships to go to college, yeah. you know. So here I am driving an ice cream truck, which I drove to my parents' house. They were not happy about that. (laughs) Um, I got a job being a PBX operator that my father got me because I knew he could get me a job and he didn't want to. But I told Uh him that I was going to go work in a massage parlor if he didn't. So he got me this job as a PBX operator. Uh And the day that I applied for that job, I was late. And I drove in and I had an argument with a guy in the parking lot who turned out to be the guy that was going to interview me for the job. This is Linda's luck. (laughs) And then I finally got the job I really liked, which was foundation leveling. So I was digging, we were digging post holes in the sides of houses to to level the foundation and and pour a beam in there Mm -hmm. to keep, you know, after the foundation was leveled. So I'm digging these holes in the like 104, 105 degree weather with a bunch of old, with a bunch of old guys who are all alcoholics and are trying to, you know, they're sobering up at about two in the afternoon and we all go on Friday, we all go to the liquor store to cash our paychecks. Mm -hmm. So that was the best job I had. I had a really good boss. His name was Toad and Mm -hmm. Toad, Toad protected me. He would keep me from, he would protect me because I was, you know, I was very mouthy and I'd have, I just wanted to tell if I had, if I didn't like you and I wanted to tell you why I just had no compunction Mm -hmm. about telling you one day I screamed in my boss's face and his face turned red and bought and, Thank God Toad was there. He pulled me out of the office. That guy was getting ready to pound me into the ground. Mm-hmm. Took me to my first t- tattoo parlor. He was a great guy. I loved him. So you're working construction. You're getting tattoos. You're cashing your paychecks in the liquor store. Uh, how long did that work for you? Not very. I think I probably yeah. worked at that job less than a year. And then huh. for I don't honestly don't even remember what it was that happened that I couldn't go back. I must have done something. I'm sure it was something I did. I have no doubt whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So that's when I took my last, literally my last $5. Here's what I had. I had my car that I actually purchased myself for $500. I worked mm-hmm. for that money. I had a pair of pants, underwear, and a T-shirt, and $5. Uh, I called up my friend Kathy, and I said, can we, let's go have some pizza. So I could, you know, I think you could buy a pizza with $5 in those days. That was, oh, yeah. uh-huh. that was 78 maybe even a Coke, too, for two. Uh-huh. And so, you know, she was sober in the program, and she let me go stay with her. Uh, and so I stayed there for the next five years, but I got sober in the meantime. Was your plan to stay there long term? No, or I, were you... no, I didn't have, I couldn't make plans. No. <laughs> yeah, I guess you know not. how it is when you're drinking? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. And, and I love I love the stories of people who get sober or uh, organically versus having to either go through treatment or an intervention. Uh, did you did you have any of that or, or did you just come into AA and get sober? No, there wasn't much. There wasn't, you know, there weren't treatment programs then like there are now. I mean, there were a lot mm-hmm. of what the old timers used to call jitter joints. Yeah. Places where you would just dry out. And then, of course, there was always this 
there was also the Schick Center. Oh yeah, you remember the Schick thirty Center? days, thirty days, and you're and you're cured. Well, it was you know it was aversion therapy. Yeah, and right. so they would put a big bib on you and a, a big bowl in front of you, and they'd force you to drink until you threw up and make you drink some more. And I thought that's my pattern. Why? <laughs> that's my drinking pattern. Why would I do that? Why pay to do it? When right, exactly. It. <laughs> when I can do it for free. No. So the reason I came into AA is because Kathy was in AA, and she hmm. she took me to meetings, you know, and I mm-hmm. kind of hung out there, and I. You know, I could see that my life was unmanageable. I didn't take a genius to figure that out, but I wasn't mm-hmm. really sure. I wasn't really sure that I was an alcoholic. I knew what an alcoholic was, and that was my my great uncle. Mm-hmm. I had a great uncle uh, mm-hmm. who, who was a terrible alcoholic. Used to sell my great grandmother's appliances, uh, and uh, he, you know, he looked like an alcoholic. He had a big old belly and skinny arms, skinny yeah, legs, yeah. and COPD and. Mm-hmm. My brother would love, and I would love to go watch him wake up in the morning because it was like a show. Um, mm. So Uncle Robert, let's go watch Uncle Robert wake up. Yeah, those were the versions when a lot of people talk about what they thought AA was like, especially people of our generation and older and some slightly younger than us. We still have that image of the alcoholic as being the person under the bridge or, you know, the, the guy with the really big red nose and the, and the veins in the eyes popping and everything like that. And, uh, but I, I wonder, do you get any sense of what people in the younger generations like uh, millennials or Gen Z or Gen X, what they have as their benchmark for what an alcoholic is? Have you ever considered that? No, I, I haven't. I've, it's, I always find it fascinating to see young people in the program that the stigma of being a young person in AA that, that used to, you know, like the old timers would say, well, I, you know, I spilled more than you drank, whatever. Yeah. No, yeah. I never really had anybody say that to me because I was really, you know, I mean, no, you know, because when I first came in, I was really angry and I showed that I was really angry. So nobody, yeah. people just didn't, you know, you know, didn't cozy up to me. Yeah, and that's a real that's a real disservice, uh, you know. Uh, especially when people are coming in. Obviously, you want to let them know they're in the right place, but to start to start immediately comparing how it must be for them how, to how it is for you is, you know, first of all, pretty presumptive. But but also, it's probably not the best welcoming technique there is. Now, when you came in, you, would you identify as an alcoholic when you introduced yourself, or yes. did you hold off? No, okay. I I mean I realized I knew. That I had, there was a couple of things that I knew. One, I knew that I could not control my drinking. Uh-huh. I mean, if I take a drink, it, all bets are off. Mm-hmm. First of all, whatever it is I'm drinking, I'm going to drink it till it's gone. Mm-hmm. I know that. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I have no idea where I'm going to end up once I start drinking. I just, yeah. you know, life, I mean, I'm, I'm at the mercy of the universe at that point. So, I mean, uh-huh. I tried along the way to tr- control my drinking and, and right. the way that I, the best way I could do it was to smoke marijuana, which I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. You know, I mean that I, I smoked dope. I had to do something every day. And the other thing I knew was there was nothing so bad in my life that a drink wouldn't take care of it. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying listening to this show, I'd like to invite you to check out the Big Book Podcast, the free audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging and inspiring word-for-word reading of all 11 chapters and personal stories, including more than 50 original stories that were left out of the third and fourth editions. If you've never read the first or second editions, these amazing stories will be brand new to you. Subscribe to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit bigbookpodcast.com and listen to your heart's content. 
and share it with your friends, sponsees, and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the big book they ever hear. Okay, we're back. How long did it take you uh, to essentially work through the, the the steps? Did you do that within your first year? I did. I did. I got a really good sponsor. Her name was Tony. She was just such a sweetheart. She uh-huh. really was. And I mean, she was very patient with me and I was, I was batshit crazy yeah, um, yeah. and no booze, no program. And I was just like, oh my God, I, I, I was extremely agoraphobic my first year. I didn't even know what was wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody would ring the front door and I'd go hide in the back closet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the only place I ever felt safe was at an AA meeting. That's the only place I felt safe. And so, so I was willing. The people around me looked like they had an answer. For the first time in my life, I was willing to follow directions because I wanted what they had. How about the God part of the spiritual part of the program? Did you latch on to that immediately or did that take you some time to get comfortable with? What was your experience? No, the first meeting I went to where I picked up a chip was at the Preston Group. And I went to this meeting and there, were, a, uh, there, were, there weren't that many people there. I don't remember anything that was said except somebody said something about the big book. And I thought, damn it. They're going to talk the about Bible. the Bible. This is, yeah, right. I almost got up and walked out. I mean, I almost walked out of that meeting. And I, I'm glad, you know, it was grace that kept me there. So, yeah. no, I didn't, you know, because I had all these weird things that the nuns had told us about, you know, God. And I had these misconceptions. And I knew at the age of seven I was going to hell. And I mean, you know, uh, it was just awful. And so, yeah. you know, when it came to, you know, made a decision I just mm-hmm. said, look, if you're there, whatever you are, you're going to have to do it because I can't. And mm-hmm. so what ended mm-hmm. up happening was um, people at the people in the meetings and when we would go to coffee and dinner afterwards mm-hmm. would say, you don't have to have a specific belief. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to have a belief. Right. You know, if you believe, I believe that's enough. Let me ask you, how long did it take you to get a sustaining comfort level with God and with the idea of uh, higher power controlling years. your life. It took years. And I don't have a well-defined concept. What ended up happening is everything, all the stupid stuff went away. Uh-huh. Um, all the foolish stuff went away. Yeah. The resentment against the Catholic Church went away. Whatever anybody wants to, to say about their higher power is not a bother. It doesn't bother me anymore. It used right. to, but it doesn't anymore. And so, you know, what I, the way I look at it is pretty nebulous. I see it as grace. So I see it as, as that. And when I look back on my sobriety and even uh-huh. before my sobriety, you know, there was something working in my life and, yeah. and it's, and it's brought me and it's brought me to this point. Yeah. I kind of felt the same way and it, it took me a while. I had to work the steps before I could really gain that conscious contact because somehow I got through the steps, which were things that I never thought in my life I'd be able to do. And once getting through them, it's almost like AA is a self-proving program. If you do the work and get through the steps, you will change. You will, your attitudes and your opinions and your beliefs will change for for the better. Now, you've been sober so long in, in my early days. I'd look at somebody with 10 or 20 or 30 years of sobriety and think, Boy, that guy's got it made, you know. He, he's probably, he's been sober so long, he probably doesn't have a problem in the world. And he doesn't have to worry about whether or not he drinks because he knows that he's not and he's an AA and he's, a, you know, a, on a pillar. What was your feeling about people with long-term sobriety when you were new in the program? You know, I didn't know anybody that with more than 17 years in the program. I, uh-huh. I had a sponsor. I, after I switched from Tony, I, had, I got a sponsor named David A., 
So, uh, and he had 17 years, and I just thought that was phenomenal. I didn't know people had more than that time in the program. Mm. And uh, I, I was amazed when, when I met people that had 10 years in the program. I just couldn't, couldn't fathom what that would be like. You know, the universe ups the ante as you get, as you get more time in the program. Yeah, it sure does. What were some of the early things that happened in your life during the early years of sobriety and your participation in AA? What were some of the early tests of that? Or, or at what point was your program stretched uh, to, to a greater degree than others? Going to college and getting, getting you know, that was a test in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister hit bottom while I was going to college. Um, and I found her passed out in my parents' house, almost in a coma. Oh, um, that's an interesting story. That's a God thing right there. So thank God you had AA to lean on during those tough times, huh? Right. Yes. Linda, as a physician, you must have had lots of opportunities to see the outcome of uh, alcoholism uh, on a firsthand basis. What? How did that inform the way you looked at it, felt about it, and, and, and communicated that to your sponsees and other people in the program? You know, it's, that's a, you're the first person who's ever asked me that question. Um, and I can tell you for a fact, I've seen every outcome of the disease of alcoholism that there is, mm-hmm. from acute intoxication to uh, chronic people with chronic paranoid delusions from their alcoholism to people that have had um, they, where they, their chemistry in their body gets so out of whack that they need to have IV fluids from people to having, mm-hmm. you know, alcoholic mm-hmm. seizures. So I've seen every, every mm-hmm. version of illness that this, that this disease causes. I would talk to people when they were in really bad shape about their alcoholism and mm-hmm. ask them if they, you know, did they think they had mm-hmm. a problem? Did they think that they needed help stop getting, you know, getting help for their alcoholism, I, you know, many times, you know, and then there were people who were obviously not interested in, mm-hmm. they were going to die. 75,000 to 80,000 people yeah. die a year of this disease. Yeah. yeah. And of course, that's all being eclipsed now by what's happening with this virus. What were some of the other um, things that, that happened that tested the integrity of your program or the strength of your Yeah, I don't think anything, sober? I didn't realize that I was getting ill. Like personally, I have a chronic illness. You know, I just, I wasn't able to handle, sure. so I was physically incapable, of, and I didn't I didn't handle knowing that I was going to have to do something else. It sure. really didn't. I crashed and burned. Mm-hmm. I ended up doing I ended up working for a company, you know, and and got involved with a guy who I realized who I realized mm-hmm. later was a crook, you know, uh, and so mm-hmm. and I wasn't I wasn't making a whole lot of meetings at that time. That's how that challenged me. And how how long have you been sober at that time? Almost thirty, maybe thirty years, close to thirty. Years. Yeah. Wow. So it was the it was the only time in my life that I have not. I think I went to two meetings one year. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it two was in bad. One year? I wasn't interested in drinking or using. But yeah. what ended up happening is all those old habits and thoughts, you know, and ways of being started to return. And that's exactly yeah. what the book says: the insanity returns, and we drink again. I wasn't interested in drinking again, so. I, uh-huh. you know, so I started, you know, about every five years in the program before that I would crash and burn, meaning I'd have some sort of a circ- circumstance or situation where emotionally I would just implode and I'd have uh-huh. to, you know, go back to basics and start all over again. That was uh-huh. the last time that happened to me. I have not had mm. that. I've not had that experience since then. So I had to really get back to basics and uh-huh. meetings every day and finding a way to hook myself into the program so that I wouldn't. Uh-huh 
be tempted to drift away again. And thank God I haven't because, you know, I fell in love with this program and I'm still in love with this program. You yeah. Know? That's, that's great to hear. And it's a nice way to put it. I, I feel, I feel the same way uh, with the things that you're talking about. Every You're talking about a, a period of every five years crashing and burning, but yet at the end of the crash and burn, I haven't heard you say that you went out over it. And what what kind of things did you do immediately when those situations occurred for you? So I would up my meeting attendance uh-huh. and then, you know, make sure that I had a sponsor that I was mm-hmm. talking to somebody. So what mm-hmm. I do today is I have two or three people that I can pick up the phone and say anything to. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I, that's my a... favorite person to do that with is Gary. And I got to yeah. tell you, I got to tell you a funny story about Gary. Uh-huh. So, so I've been ill. I've been ill for the last decade. And, uh, and one day, and <laughs> one day I was going into the hospital and Gary didn't have anything else to do. So he went with me. So we're sitting in my, this hospital room. And I'm waiting for the doctor to show up, which could be mm-hmm. never these days. Yeah. So we're chitting and we're chatting and he starts telling me things about himself, really mm-hmm. personal things I've never heard yeah. him say. And I was just so gratified, you know, that he would be feel comfortable enough with me to tell me these things until mm-hmm. he, until I realized that the son of a bitch thought I was dying and he was going to be <laughs> doing a last fifth step. <laughs> oh, <gee. laughs> oh, that must have helped you, though, didn't it? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Uh, but you know a, what? A, I mean, really, yeah. it, it, it it to have the to have that. What a blessing that is to know that I can pick up the phone and there's a two or three people in the world that I could say anything to, and they would be accepting, you know, and and gracious about listening to whatever was going on with me. That's a real gift too. I mean, uh, and and that's one of the things that I like to ask people about is, you know, what what are the greatest gifts that you've received by your active participation in AA? I mean, for me, it's it's a marriage, it's a long term marriage, it's it's uh, a, a good family, it's lots and lots and lots of friends. I, I would I would wonder what your what you feel are some of the big gifts in your life. I feel the way you do. I mean, mm-hmm. I have. You know, I have I've been in the same relationship for mm-hmm. 21 years. Wow, that's great. You know, before I came to the program, I wouldn't make. I, there's no way I could even make it for two or three. It just wasn't in my DNA. Mm-hmm. So I have a partner and a relationship that I, I that I cherish. Um, and and my relationship with my parents, my mother. You know, I had a really good relationship with her. My sister and I were both sober when she died. So my mother it was very important to my mother that her children did well, especially. Especially my sister, my younger sister, because she's got two two kids, and my mother loved her grandchildren, mm-hmm. and her grandchildren are doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, through my relationship with Marsha, I had the opportunity to have, you know, the I don't have children of my own. So mm-hmm. when, when Marsha's daughter had her first child, she was kind of at pretty much at loose ends. She was trying to get her life together, and so for the first three years of my grandson, for the first three years mm-hmm. of his life, we co-parented. And that's the closest that I have. That's the closest experience that I have to raising a child. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed it. I love my grandchildren. Oh, um, that's and beautiful. So we were, you know, and so my, and, and Marsha's oldest daughter, or youngest daughter came to live with us and hated my guts for the entire time mm-hmm. she lived here. So 
<laughs> you know, I mean, I'd go to meetings and I would literally cry and say, everybody likes me except my stepdaughter. <laughs> but anyway, we, we've, you know, we, we had her med- meet her wedding in February. She got married this past February. Uh-huh. And so, and I was, you know, I got, a, I got to be a part of that and, and I That's love her cool. and I know she loves me. And so, you know, we've developed yeah. a, a really good relationship. Everything like things like that happen in this program, even if it looks bad, even if it's yeah. unpleasant or downright horrible. You know, yeah. if you stay with it and you work the program, some somehow, mm-hmm. some way, it, it the way you, the way reality unfolds or folds itself makes it useful not only to you but everybody else around you. It's just miraculous. Yeah, that's a that's a really superb sentiment. And I wanted to first of all get your opinion and or feedback about um, Zoom meetings these days. Well, I got to say, to be honest, I used to say for several years before. COVID, that I can't stay sober on the internet. I mean, I would say that just in a really nasty, smart-ass kind of way, and the universe always manages to slap you back when when it's convenient. So I, I think Zoom meetings are a life, are, you know, really are a, a lifesaver. They yeah. really are. I can stay sober on the internet. I'm here yeah. to say I was wrong about that uh-huh. sentiment. And uh-huh. <clears throat> So, you know, I just think it, it takes time. It's just the same process of finding a meeting, like when you when you get new and you're new in the program and you think, I don't yeah. really like this group, I'm going to try to go to another group. Find yeah. a Zoom meeting that fits you. Right. And so I started a Zoom meeting because yeah. I, I really wanted a smaller meeting where we, we focused on the basics, meaning the steps. Because I've yeah. always thought that the best meetings came out of step discussion. Where people would have an opportunity to express themselves without having to worry about having prepared, you know, their mm-hmm. their news bite, their you know, their yeah, three yeah, minutes yeah. of polished response. So I, but I go to both. I go to the mm-hmm. the Zoom meeting that got sixty people in it, and I really mm-hmm. enjoy the the smaller meeting that's got twelve or thirteen people in it. Yeah, that's so I'm for them. I think they're going to stay. Yeah, they were obviously they were here even before the pandemic. There are a lot of uh, remote programs out there. I'm getting a lot of newcomers these days. It's it's relatively easy for people to just tune in and watch and uh, maybe get some some uh, sense of what the program is about. I know we're about attraction and not promotion, but if you ran into uh, somebody who definitely could be a prospect for the AA program, and you had like a minute, you know, an elevator uh, amount of time to be able to tell them about AA that would be most impactful, what would you say? I think I would I would probably ask that person if they could use or make use of a way to help them out of whatever situation they were in, where people had the experience, their experience, and came through that experience and managed to have a, a life worth living. Hmm. I think I would just leave it open like that. Yeah. Do you think there's is there's some resistance among newer people or people just evaluating whether or not to go into a program? Do you think there's any resistance based on the person telling them having so many years that how can you identify with me? You're, you've been sober all these years. Huh? You can't. You probably don't even remember what it was like. Yeah, you know, I have a person that I sponsor who's having a very hard time making it in the program. Oh, yeah. And who often says that to me in a flippant way. I really love it. It's just so <laughs> sacrilegious. It really appeals to me. Uh-huh. So, you know, so the other day we were on the phone because I said, you need to keep calling me. I tell her, you need to keep calling me. Even if you mm-hmm. don't stay sober, I, you need to keep calling me. So we were talking the other day and I said, I know what you're thinking. And she said, <laughs> what? And I said, you're thinking as we're talking, you're trying to figure out how 
to get your next drink or where you're going to get your next drink from or who you're going to talk to or whether you're going to walk down to that store that you go to, how you're going to arrange your day around your drinking, how you're going to work it out. It's consuming you. It's all you think about. And she said, (laughs) how do you know that? Well, you know, this has been terrific, uh, Linda. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you doing this, but also just being able to connect with you on a much more intimate basis about the things that we share. I didn't realize we had so much in common, but I don't think there are any mistakes in God's universe bringing people together. And it's been that way for me. And uh, I've got to really be honest with you. You know, the opportunity to, to, to connect with you on this level was really, the for me, was the bait. Yeah. And the fact that we're doing this as a, as a podcast is even better. Yeah. I've, I've wanted to have this conversation with you for a long time. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I with you. And in fact, interestingly enough, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to start doing it in the first place. I realized I've known so many people over the years in five-minute chunks, you know, hearing them share in a meeting. And especially when they don't always get called on. I, I mean, I've gone to meetings on a regular basis, so by the time... I've been in the program as long as I have. I've heard certain people who've been in the program that amount of time speak hundreds and thousands of times, but yet I still don't have a real picture. Maybe I've never met their families. Maybe I don't know what they really do for a living. But being able to connect like this within the within the environment of AA is is for me very very important. So I uh, I thank you for doing this. I love you and I appreciate your friendship and uh, appreciate all that you do for so many people both at our club as well as out in the community. You're, you're a beautiful person. Thank you, Howard. I love you, too. And it's been a very, it's, it, this has been a wonderful experience. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. And I'll see you real soon. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your fellow AAs, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Tell them how to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and all other podcast providers. And I'd be grateful if you can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Visit our website, recoveryinterviews.com, where you can also listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. By the way, to get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous, simply visit aa.org. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.